You're listening to the Jesus for Everyone podcast. To support this podcast, go to RenewedHeartMinistries.com and click Donate. Yet to claim nonviolent neutrality, while you yourself are socially privileged and you benefit from the violence being used against people of color, both public and privatized, that's a violent form of nonviolence. This is Herb Montgomery with Renewed Heart Ministries, and I want to welcome you to episode 225 of the Jesus for Everyone podcast, where we talk about the intersection of faith and social justice and what a first century Jewish prophet of the poor might offer us today and our work of uh, survival, uh, resistance, liberation, restoration, and transformation. Our title this week is Insipid Salt. And I want to talk about this saying in the context of the events that took place last week or last weekend in, in Charlottesville. Our feature text is uh, Sayings Gospel Q 14, 34 through 35. Salt is good, but if salt becomes insipid, with what will it be seasoned? Neither for the earth nor for the dunghill is it fit. It gets thrown out. Our companion texts are Matthew 5, 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And Luke 14, 34 through 35, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit for neither the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Last weekend, the United States witnessed an evil display of racism and white supremacy, white nationalism in Charlottesville, Virginia. And we at Renewed Heart Ministries, uh, we reaffirm our commitment of solidarity with black, Latinx, native, Arab, Asian, Jewish, Muslim, immigrant communities, with women, uh, our LGBTQ siblings, and those that are organizing within the working class who are opposing uh, white supremacy. In a presentation on misogyny, heterosexism, and homophobia, uh, Reverend Dr. Kelly Brown Douglas, she explains, we must recognize the intersecting realities of all of these forces, that misogyny, heterosexism, and homophobia are all part of a social political narrative of power. That is, they are all a part of the white, patriarchal, imperialistic, capitalistic power. Misogyny, heterosexism, and homophobia are secreted by that narrative, and they feed the agenda of white male hegemony. Inasmuch as non-white, non-male, non-heterosexual persons can be effectively marginalized, can be set against one another, inasmuch as marginalized communities marginalize and oppress one another, well then... The white male agenda of oppressive power has been served. We at Renewed Heart Ministries affirm the work of those who came together last weekend, who opposed and resisted white supremacy in Charlottesville, Virginia last weekend, and and we will continue to do our part in in standing against white supremacy in all of its forms. And, And that brings me to this week's saying and its relevance to what we're seeing right now in the discussions around race here in the U.S. And first, let me ask an important question uh, about our saying. Our saying asks, what happens to salt when it becomes saltless? And and, and that, that raises the question, how could that happen? How could salt lose its saltiness? That's, that's actually chemically impossible. Salt 
is salt is salt is salt, at least today. In the first century, though, rock salt in the Roman Empire, it naturally occurred in these vast salt beds um, where evaporated minerals left a, a sediment behind. And salt was, was not the only sediment in these beds, and nor was it the only white sediment present. Salt mingled with other white sediments and was harvested, and then it was sold. And in, in a cook's broth, for example, the, the sediment, which was, again, composed of salt and, and other rock, it, it, it would be placed in a cooking cloth and used to stir the hot liquid broth. And the salt would naturally dissolve, flavor, the broth, while the other sediment, uh, with its with the less those sediments less ability, the lesser ability to dissolve, um, those wouldn't. And and over time, uh, the salt would be used up, and the other sediments would be left behind. The salt would be spent, so to say, and 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 it would have lo- quote unquote lost its saltiness. It would be insipid or tasteless, and 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 that's the point. Uh, that it would become worthless. It would be either thrown out with the gravel on the road, but it wasn't even fit to be mixed with with soil as fertilizer like salt often is. And each of the synoptic gospels, Mark and Matthew and Luke, they mention salt becoming insipid. You can find it in Mark 9, 49 through 50, Matthew 5, 13, Luke 14, 34 through 35. And in Matthew and Luke, the, the context of this week's saying is, is different. Uh, for, for Matthew, this saying is included in the list of Jesus' sayings that we call the Sermon on the Mount. And for Luke, this saying is, is set among a, a, it's a list of criteria. It, it, it's, it's included with a list of criteria as an explanation of, of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. And, and Luke seems to be reminding his readers uh, um, uh, of what it means to be a follower of Jesus in deeds and practice, not just in label or name. That's that's seems to be Luke's point. But this, I believe, hold holds relevance for us this week. And as I travel uh, from place to place, trying to help groups of Christians rediscover the teachings of Jesus at the heart of their faith, I'm struck by how often we Christians are opposed to what Jesus actually taught. Recently, I was sharing Jesus's ideas of of mutual aid and and wealth redistribution. And once again, Christians in the audience raised strident objections. And this past week too, I, I watched my Christian friends on social media demonstrating an alarming lack of discernment, echoing the harmful rhetoric of blaming many or both sides, placing evil and opposition to evil on the same moral plane. And these experiences have cemented for me the relevance of this week's saying. I've often wondered whether Christianity today has fallen much more in love with the idea of Jesus than with the reality of him. And we seem to resonate with the hope of of heavenly bliss after death, and we want a gospel that liberates us from our mortality. We also have a very low interest in a gospel that liberates us from oppression, subjugation, and marginalization here now today. And that may be because of our social position. Um, but, but, but we like a Jesus who gives us hope for the future, but leaves the present pretty much untouched. We're, we're, we're happy with a, a Jesus who promises heaven and leaves our present uh, 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 
issues of economics and, and, and racial and sexist injustice or economic injustice leaves those in place. And, and, and again, we're, we're happy with a, a Jesus even who promises heaven but leaves our present homophobia and biphobia and transphobia completely unaddressed or, or, or even worse, um, affirmed. And I, I'm working through my own, as you can tell, my own frustration with this reality among Christians today. I, I don't resonate with a Jesus who, who's only concerned with our afterlife. And, and I'm honestly at a loss to understand those Christians only interested in that kind of a Jesus. The Jesus in the gospel stories addressed and challenged the social, economic, and political injustice of his day. We never see Jesus telling people how to get to heaven or, or how to have a private relationship with him even. We do see him teaching us how to enter into relationships with, with one another and how to, to share with one another and how to take care of one another. We encounter a Jesus who uh, cautions us to make sure that, that no one has too much and that everyone has enough. And Jesus isn't preoccupied with a future heaven, but, but rather with a present hell in which too many are trying to scrape out an existence. He didn't offer a privatized peace of mind. He offered a distributively just path towards peace on earth. And a Christianity that has forgotten what the Jesus of the Gospels actually taught is a Christianity that's lost its way. It's lost the way. It's lost its saltiness. It's become insipid, or worse, it's become dangerous. Throughout history, forms of Christianity that have become divorced from Jesus' ethical teachings They've produced a Christianity that becomes the tool uh, that the, the powerful use to push the vulnerable to the undersides and the margins. And, and we see this in Europe before the Enlightenment and at the heart of, uh, of colonialism. We, 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 we see it in the history of, of America with, with Native people, and we see it in, in the Africans that were brought here against their will through the inhumane trade of slavery. And we see it globally in the economic exploitation of developing countries by the West. And parts of contemporary U.S. Christianity have departed starkly from the teachings of the historical Jesus. Recently, one Christian claimed, and I'll put a link to it this weekend, uh, or in this this uh, in our e-site this weekend. Uh, recently, one one very uh, well-known megachurch Christian claimed that a uh, Christian pastor claimed that God had given Trump authority to take out uh, Kim Jong Un. Uh, Christians applaud the administration's dismantling of decades of of protecting the vulnerable through regulation. Uh, they, they applaud this rollback administration. Christians support the denial of climate change, and, and they respond, all lives matter to, to silence people of color. It happened to me just yesterday, uh, 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 to silence people of color who are standing up to systemic injustice. And this was from a person who should know better, should know how all lives matter is being used, and should never allow that phrase to even come out of their lips. And Christians chant religious liberty as they did during the civil rights movement, as a code for the demand to, to live out bigotry, whether it be racism or uh, homophobia or transphobia or biphobia. And, and while many, this week even, while many CEOs demonstrated their opposition to Trump's defense of white supremacy, this past week, most evangelical leaders carried on with business as usual. There was no change for them. And I live in West Virginia, which is the most Trump pro-Trump state in the U.S. 
But I also know that West Virginians aren't alone in their support. I see church signs here that attribute to Trump a, a savior status, to, and to some Christians, he, he's, a, he's a godsend in, in whom that they find hope that America will go back to the way it used to be. And this is the same man who, who bragged of sexually assaulting women and whose campaign included dog whistle racism and, and blatant xenophobia. He, he dropped the dog whistle this week, and he defended white supremacists outright. And my Christian friends who are Trump supporters, they took it all in stride. They didn't even bat an eye. It wasn't a deal breaker for these Christians. The Christianity of the socially privileged is not a countercultural movement that speaks truth to the powerful and calls for a radically different way of organizing society. And, and although tr those traits are the traits of the ancient Hebrew prophets, they're either absent or sometimes they're even opposed within this sector of Christianity today. And last weekend, uh, a multi-faith coalition of, of clergy uh, who, who do demonstrate these traits, they met in Charlottesville to, to counter-protest the white supremacists uh, and the alt-right uh, rally there. And I'll put a link to, to that from Sojourners in, in uh, this week's uh, East Side as well. But, but the, their lives were in jeopardy multiple times. And they were saved, according to Cornell West. I'll put a link to this interview on on Democracy Now. But they they, they were put in jeopardy. Their lives were put in jeopardy multiple times, and, and and they were saved not by the police who just stood by, but by groups such as uh, Antifa and and other anarchists who stepped in. And yet, so many white Christians here in the U.S. they criticized this week the violence of those groups that came to uh, these faith leaders' aid with their both-sides rhetoric, oblivious to their own social location in the discussion. And, and hear me what I'm saying. It, it, it's, it, what I'm concerned with is, is our total disregard for our own social location in these types of discussions. And Reverend Dr. Kelly Brown Douglas, again, she spoke out this week uh, about where the critique of violence should land. And she said, make no mistake about it. Such ideologies in and of themselves are violent. For any ideology or system of thought that objectifies another human being and fails to recognize their very humanity must be recognized as violent. Moreover, such ideologies and systems serve only to precipitate more violence. The violence of objectification, that's the violence that that my white Christian friends should have been critiquing this week, um, not the violence of the resistance. Paul Ferrer's words in Pedagogy of, of the Oppressed, uh, I think could pull back the veil from white Christians' understanding. It could, as the potential to. He, he writes, Never in history has violence been initiated by the oppressed. How could they be the initiators? If they themselves are the result of violence, how could they be the sponsors of something whose object inauguration called forth their existence as oppressed. There would be no oppressed had there been no prior situation of violence to establish their subjugation. Violence is initiated by those who oppress, who exploit, who fail to recognize others as persons, not by those who are oppressed, not by those who are exploited and unrecognized. And, and I want to be clear, um, I do subscribe to nonviolence. I teach it and, and I uphold it. Yet to claim 
like I saw this week, nonviolent neutrality, saying I'm against violence on both sides. While you yourself are socially privileged and you benefit from the violence being used against people of color, both public and privatized, that's a violent form of nonviolence. And I reject that. To, to, to compare oppressors and resistors based only on the use of violence is intellectually lazy. The two sides are not on the same moral plane. They are not morally equivalent. They are not equals. And, and social location also matters. It is not for us to determine what form people's opposition should take when we socially benefit from their oppression. That's not our place. And it's another form, a subtle form, of white supremacy to believe that that we're in a moral position to even critique the resistance of those threatened by white supremacists. And we, we may not like it, but James H. Cohn, he correctly states, since whites have been the most violent race on the planet, their theologians and preachers are not in a position to tell black people or any other people for that matter what they must do to be like Jesus. He wrote those words in his book, God of the Oppressed. And, and, and all white people, they benefit from one degree to another from the white supremacy that's baked into our country's history and, 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 and our, our, our country's design. And that is what we should have been opposing this week. That's what we should have been standing up to. That's what we should be standing up to right now. And if the resistance is to be critiqued, if the opposition to white supremacy is to be critiqued, that critique should come from those who are being targeted by the violence of white supremacy. And in some places it is. But but it should not come from those who are standing on the sidelines and claiming a moral superiority to violence. And, and, and what should I? as a white Christian, cisgender, straight male, be speaking out to this week? Well, the Christianity of the socially privileged here in the U.S. is one of the things on the list. What happened to the movement that was spawned by a Jewish prophet of the poor who stood in solidarity with the exploited and the marginalized and whose work was characterized as good news to the poor and liberation to the oppressed, as it is in Luke 4, 18-19? The salt has become insipid. Its flavor is rancid. It's no longer based on the sayings and the teachings of the one whose work it was founded to honor. And as, as Reverend Willie Dwayne uh, Francois III stated, it's become duplicitous. There is another way to understand Christianity, but we have to let this confront us first. Dolores Williams reminds us, it, it seems more intelligent more scriptural, to understand that redemption had to do with God through Jesus, giving humankind new vision to see the resources for positive, abundant, relational life. Redemption had to do with God through the ministerial vision, giving humankind the ethical thought and practice upon which to build positive, productive quality of life. Hence, the kingdom of God theme in the ministerial vision of Jesus does not point to death. It is not something one has to die to reach. Rather, the kingdom of God is a metaphor of hope. God gives those attempting to right the relations between self and self, between self and others, and between self and God, as prescribed in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Golden Rule, 
and the commandment to show love above all else. Salvation in the sayings gospel cue that we've been looking at in this series, it, it was not about getting to postmortem bliss. Salvation was defined as, as righting the injustice, the oppression, and mm-hmm. violence in our world. It had a distinctly Jewish character to it, I mean, a, a, a character of hope where, where one day all injustice, oppression, and violence in the earth would be put right. And Q does not point to a future Messiah figure, but, but to instead a, a then-contemporary prophet of the poor who showed the way uh, whereby followers could choose a, uh, to, to right injustice, to right oppression, and to right violence then and there themselves, beginning with them. And salvation defined this way, it's based on action, not in the sense of merit that we, it's something that we earn, but intrinsically, because our choices have intrinsic results. Human, humanly created problems, they can have humanly chosen solutions. And Q's gospel isn't primarily fixated on guilt alleviation, on, on grace, on forgiveness, or no condemnation, and unconditional love for oppressors. In Q, Jesus' salvific way, it included mutual aid or resource sharing, wealth redistribution, nonviolent self-affirming resistance, and, and it was a value shift that centered those on the edges, and it sat those on the undersides of society around a shared table. It wasn't liberal, it wasn't progressive, it was liberation, and it was radical. And characters in the Gospels who held positions of power they felt threatened by it. People in power, they don't feel threatened by people handing out tickets to postmortem heaven that leave everything in the now left alone. They feel threatened by people unifying around a shared vision of how things can change here and now today. And today, many people believe that Christianity has become worthless, like the, the salt in our saying. Um, they believe it's, it's fit neither for the earth nor for the dung hell. And, and I'm not sure what Christianity's future is, but I do believe that to the best of our ability, we must re- rediscover the gospel that Jesus himself taught, not merely a gospel about him. We must then take these teachings, what we discover, we have to take those teachings then and, and weigh their fruit, asking what they may offer our work of survival, resistance, liberation, restoration, and transformation today. And anything less, in my estimation, would be unfaithful to the Jesus stories. Our saying this week, sayings gospel Q 14, 34 through 35, salt is good, but if it becomes insipid, with what will it be seasoned? Neither for the earth nor for the dunghill is it fit. It gets thrown out. Heart group application this week, in the statement by Dr. Kelly Brown Douglas uh, that I read above, uh, made this past week, she also states, if it wasn't clear before, The events in Charlottesville have now made it abundantly clear. We have reached a decision point as a nation. We must decide whether we want to be a nation defined by its Anglo-Saxon myth of exceptionalism and white supremacist culture, or one defined by its democratic rhetoric of being a nation of liberty and justice for all. This question is even more poignant for people of faith, for we must decide if we are a people committed to a vision of a country that reflects an Anglo-Saxon God or a God whose image is revealed through a racial, ethnic, religiously, and culturally diverse humanity. If we are in fact committed to building a nation and a people reflective of a God with a vision of justice and freedom for all, 
then we must do more than just counter-protest. Rather, we must proactively protest for the kind of, an, of nation and people that we want to be. This week, I want you to go back and reread this whole article, and, and I want you to discuss it together as a group. Um, Dr. Douglas has, has, has a lot to, to say here, and uh, I'll put a link to it in, in this week's uh, e-site. And then number two, uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center has also released a document, 10 Ways to Fight Hate. I want you to read through this document too, and I want you to discuss as a heart group which of these 10 that you as a group could begin putting into practice. And then number three, pick the way that you want to fight hate that you discussed and do it. For all of you who are tuning in this week, I'm so glad you checked in with us. Wherever you are, keep living in love. Uh, when you start with, as, as Dr. Emily Towns uh, states, uh, when you start with an understanding that God loves everyone, justice isn't very far behind. Also, uh, remember to check out our new 525-1 project. Um, there you can find out uh, how to, 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 a new way to participate in Renewed Heart Ministries community. And we just completed actually our first 500 and uh, 525-1 project, uh, our first weekend event. And uh, I wrote about it uh, on our news site. I'll put a link to that in this week's e-site as well. Or you can go to RenewedHeartMinistries.com and just click on news. Um, but uh, remember, keep living in love. Um, love that, that makes a difference. Love that takes action. I love each one of you dearly. I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.